Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome, welcome. So glad you've decided to join me. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. And I want to talk to you for the next few minutes about these debates on God that I watched. I don't know how many, a dozen or two. And I was just really curious, what do the atheists have to say for themselves? I mean, I hear a lot about how we know for sure that there's no God and we know for sure that evolution is real and it's the answer to everything and it solves all the greatest questions of life. And I kind of had in the back of my mind for the last few years, certainly the the atheists have some really great arguments to prove their points. Certainly they're going to give me some really great meat to kind of chew on and, and, and maybe it'll shake my faith a little bit, but I'm going to go see what they have to say. So I just carved out some time and over several weeks, every spare minute, I watched these debates and I I took a whole bunch of notes and I want to just talk to you about some of the things that I learned because it was really a fascinating journey. First, let's talk a little bit about some of the most popular arguments against the reality of God, the reasons that he can't exist. One of the most common is that there are no miracles. This kind of ties back into something that we talk here at the Mission Driven Mom a lot about, and that is the idea of natural law and principles. And what the atheist will say is, okay, there's this thing called natural law. And I talk about this in the the natural law podcast that I did previously, that within the realm of natural law, there's the law of human nature that governs mankind. And that law of human nature is one of the best evidences for God. But The atheist doesn't um, accept the idea of the law of human nature. They don't address that issue specifically. The law of nature means scientific law, and it means scientific law only. And if the term the law of nature is ever talked about in school, it, it means that, which is fascinating going back to some of those other podcasts where I talked about all of this, how could... How could those who wrote our founding documents have ever meant scientific laws only when they said the law of nature and nature's God? Anyway, so because there's this law of nature, which are the scientific laws, we don't ever see natural laws being broken. So like we don't see the Red Sea being opened wide up and people walking through it or, you know, people coming out of their graves alive. And that means that there's no miracles. So natural law means scientific laws. That's the first thing to understand that that's how it's being defined. And miracle means a breach in natural law where you can see that science has clearly been stepped over. Well, um, that doesn't, that, so that's, that's the argument. There's no miracles, that means there's no God. So all we can see is science. That's what we can see and touch and feel. And that's why we know there's no God because there's no miracles. Now, for the believer, a miracle is a totally different thing. Although there are those kinds of terrific miracles that, that, that have happened historically, the real miracles are the things when, you know, hearts are changed, you say powerful prayers, and someone's healed miraculously. You know, there's everyone, all the doctors, they're going to die, they're never going to be healed. 
or you receive answers to really hard questions you never thought you could see the answers to. So miracles are for the believer, simply God's intervention in your life, which you can see when you're interacting with him regularly. So, so the believer says, absolutely, there's miracles, not within the narrow definition you've created for it. Super important to remember that definitions mean a lot. Definitions, um, when you define something a certain way, then people think you mean something. So you got to be clear about the definitions. Now, another really popular one that happened a lot was there's kind of three that are just kind of about the nature of God. One is that a loving God would never allow the kind of suffering that happens in our world. That would just be contrary to, to the nature of a loving God. For the theist, of course, we have free will. That's God's greatest gift to us. He will never breach our free will. And therefore he has to allow us to behave in certain ways and we can make our own choices. And as we make those choices, we hurt each other. And it's not his fault that we're hurting each other. It's our fault that they're, that we're hurting each other. And so, um, so that's a, that's a huge one that came up often. God would not allow this kind of suffering. It's still a struggle for people, um, to believe in God because life is hard. It's interesting. I was watching it. I was watching a different interview the other day and, and something that this man was saying, who I think is actually Jewish. I can't remember. Maybe he's Christian. Anyway, um, he was talking about how that is a Western argument to say that God would never do that, allow suffering, because in the East, suffering is part of life and it's not considered a bad thing to suffer. It's only because of our Western mindset that we think suffering is bad, that we think a loving God wouldn't allow suffering. So that's even, you know, the more you understand, the more you live that law of love of humanity and you understand worldviews and world religions, the more you could see, oh, these kind of arguments just kind of break down. Another one about the nature of God is that if he were really God, he should be good enough and smart enough to make everybody obey him. Because the, the theist will say, okay, well, uh, he, he gives us free will. He wants us to be able to make our own choices and make our own way and be creatives or creators of ourselves. So he's not going to breach our free will. So the atheist says, uh, so the theist says, well, so then that means that we can hurt each other. We can make choices that are painful to each other. And the, the atheist says, no, he should be able to make us obey him. And it was interesting because I remember a couple different times, right when I was in the middle of the debates, thinking to myself right in that moment, that's ridiculous. You can't have both. You can't have free will and be forced to obey. They're self-contradictory. God can't do things clearly, even though he's perfect. He can't do things that are outside the realm of common sense and that are self-contradictory. If he were to make us obey him at all times, we would be nothing more than extensions of him. We would just be his appendages. We wouldn't be who we are. We wouldn't be individuals separate and apart from him, making our own choices, creating creators of ourselves. Another thing about the nature of God is that he should have done a better job. This came up frequently <laughs> uh, in a lot of different ways. He should have done a better job in creating the world. He should have left more evidence for himself. He should do a better job of proving to us that he exists. Um, he should have created us better. He should have done a better job at making human beings. Um, Julia Sweeney, this is one thing that she would say. Um, there's all these animals with better hearing and better eyesight and things like that than us. And 
So if God was really God, he would have given us all the best stuff because we're his children. And so he would have given us the best eyes and all the best stuff. So clearly there's not a God because he wasn't smart enough to do all these things for us. In conjunction with that, when he's he should have done a better job, is this idea that he should have done a better job at leaving more evidence. One of the, one of the atheists talked about how the, uh, pr- the burden of proof is on the theist and on God. That what we really are naturally is atheists and that God has to prove himself to us and other people that believe in him have to prove themselves. Otherwise, just go on being uh, an atheist and don't worry about it because um, <laughs> the burden of proof is on God. And he should have done a better job of proving Jesus and leaving more evidence behind, even though there's more evidence for Jesus than pretty much any historical figure. That's not good enough. Um, anyway, so so those those kinds of things that, that clearly are not evidence that there isn't a God. They're, they're arguments that you don't like the way God works or you don't like the way the world is, but they certainly don't prove there isn't a God. Um... Another huge one that came up often, this is this is Atkins, we just don't need God. Like, there's no reason for us to even be here debating, really, because science has it all figured out, and we're doing just fine. We're flying in planes, we've got satellites, we've got internet, we've, we've gone to the moon, we're doing fine. We don't really need God, so I'm not sure why we're even talking about it. Um, and, and in conjunction with that, there was this idea that if you if you do believe in God, and, and this was said often, if you do believe in God, it's because you're lazy. You're intellectually lazy. And, you know, historically, and you see this a lot on like uh, YouTube videos about the nature of God or even on history, you see it in history textbooks. You know, if, if the issue of God ever comes up in the classroom, it's this idea that it used to be, that people believed in God because they needed to explain nature. And they only worshiped God because they were afraid of God and they didn't want him to like have lightning strike or have an earthquake or whatever. Which of course totally negates all the other kind of true worship and true personal revelation and true connection with God that took place in millions and millions and, and billions of people's hearts outside of we need to explain nature or whatever. And of course, the change of heart and forgiveness and all those other spiritual aspects of life are totally and completely negated in this argument that we don't need God because uh, science can explain everything. Certainly there are things about human nature that cannot be explained without God. If you get into that realm with an atheist, then the argument is psychology explains that. Psychology shows us that if people have a certain thing inside a certain part of their brain, that they're murderers. And if if people are mentally ill, then they have visions. And so clearly psychology explains anything that's going on inside a person's head. Um, this is Atkins. Here's the reasons there's not a God. We don't need him to explain the universe. There's clearly no purpose in the universe. There's no proof that there's a purpose. There's no miracles, as I mentioned earlier. A loving God wouldn't allow us to live in a horrible world. And morality continues to evolve. We're clearly better as people than we've ever been. And we're just getting better, which is clearly not true. (laughs) And um, of course, miracles is all about how you define it. And in terms of the purpose in the universe, what's fascinating for that one about me, for me, is why why do human beings want purpose? For me, all those things 
are reasons that there is a God because we long for purpose. We long for meaning. We see miracles happening. We are in awe of nature and we have an innate moral code and sense of right and wrong. Those all prove that there's a God. Um, now here's, I, I've been kind of saying the arguments against God and counteracting them with some arguments for God. I'll give you a few more arguments for God. And then I want to tell, talk to you about some of the conclusions that I drew from what I noticed in the debates and, and, and the, the, the important, the most important part of all of this for us as mothers, as individuals and mothers. So of course, some of the arguments for God, there's, um, the second law of thermodynamics, um, evolution is clearly not in harmony with conscience, a sense of right and wrong, and and more the morality issue. This is something that we get into in level two of the academy in, in quite a bit of depth, and that is the uniformity of morality throughout history. Talk about it a little bit in level three as well. Looking at those principles and natural laws throughout history, really actually people have had about the same moral code forever, thought the same kinds of things were right and wrong. Um, as I mentioned, the atheist will often say that the theist is lazy and, and what would happen is that these questions would arise and the atheist couldn't answer them. Like, why are human beings different than all the other animals? Why do we have a moral identity? Why do we identify ourselves by our relationship to God? And there was just simply no answer for that. In fact, one of the things that Dawkins said is that um, we don't even need to be asking why. Asking why is childish. You know, <laughs> we're just being juvenile if we ask why. We don't, who cares? It doesn't matter. We're here. This is what it is. Grow up. Get over it. You don't need God. Scientists are the ones that are willing to accept reality. Atheists are the ones that are not. Uh, the theists are the ones that are not. One of the, one of the huge arguments for God that, that I came across, and I can't remember if someone said this or if I just kind of thought of it as a result of going through this, and that is that it's so important for each of us as individuals to identify ourselves in our relationship with God. Most, if not all human beings at some point in their lives come to a point where they must decide that they, what, where they stand with God. Why must they decide that? Why, why do we get to a point where we have to know, do I believe in God or, do, or don't I? If there were no God, that question wouldn't arise. It would just be a, it would just be a non-issue. Why would anyone ever think about whether or not there is a God and if they need to identify themselves according to their relationship with God, if he wasn't in there somewhere, you know, poking at us, prodding us and trying to get us to pay attention and wake up. There's certainly um, intelligent design arguments, uh, integrated or irreducible complexity argument. This means that certain biological systems can't evolve by successive uh, small modifications. So the idea of evolution, the way that it's presented, just cannot explain the way certain systems are built, uh, especially in biology. So you can't, that, that's not a universal explanation. And it can't explain how these um, organisms arose and how they do what they do. They're, they're far too complex in the way that they function. Um, so Dawkins says, this is another way that um, the atheist kind of would get at 
Well, let me, before I do that, before I do that conclusion, let me give you a couple more arguments for God. Um, the expansion of the universe, the laws of constants of the universe are too finely tuned to be an accident. And of course, there's all kinds of things that can't be proven by science, even in my teaching company video on science. The lecturer in the first lecture is honest enough to say, science can answer scientific questions, that's it. It can't answer moral questions or metaphysical questions, and it cannot answer the question of whether or not there's a God, it just can't. It doesn't have the capacity to do that. It's not trying to solve those kinds of problems. There are five things, this is one, one of the debaters presented, five things that can't be proven by science, logical and mathematical proofs, because science presupposes them. It's like saying, we have these tools already here, nature, math, and logic. Let's use them to prove that these tools exist. So you can't use science to prove science. Metaphysical truths, there are minds other than my own, or the external world is real, the past is really the past. That can't be proven by science. Ethical proofs, that there are values of things, um, that there is good and evil, Nazis versus Americans, for example. You can't prove through science that, that somebody was right or wrong in an ethical question. Aesthetic proofs, you can't prove that something's beautiful through science. And um, you can't even often prove, not only can you not prove logic and math with science, you can't prove science with science. Uh, often you just have to take it on, on, um, on assumption and work with it and just kind of try to prove it as you work it out. Here's, here's a few of the things outside of just the debate, just, just the arguments for God or against God that, that really made an impression on me. And that is that the way that these men, every once in a while there'd be a woman, it was mostly men that were debating, um, kind of behaved and carried themselves. It was usually the case, and I and I know that some of these conclusions I'm going to draw are going to sound like, well, of course you would say that, you believe in God. But I really did try to go in with as unbiased um, an attitude as I could. And honestly, there was part of me that was a bit afraid. It's kind of like a, a woman I know who said that she was afraid to live in a neighborhood other than her own because she was afraid too many people wouldn't believe in God and and she was afraid to live around people like that. I There was a little part of me that was a little bit afraid What's going to happen when I watch these? Are they going to say something so wildly brilliant that it's going to really kind of rattle me? But I thought, I've got a strong foundation. I know who I am. I know who God is. And, and I, I'm going to go into this as honestly as I can and look at it as clearly as I can. And so a couple of, of things that I noticed. The, athe the theists, those that believed in God, were usually better prepared. They usually had better proofs that were better thought out and that they came with good arguments that they presented in a logical fashion. The atheists often did not do this. They were often um, very kind of um, reactionary in the way that they debated. They weren't very prepared. They didn't have good arguments to show that there was no God. They were simply reacting to what the theist presented. And another thing that I noticed was that the theists were universally there was a time or two when one of the those that were for god said something that i felt like was a little across the line a little not as kind as i would want them to be but it was universally the case that the atheists were far more degrading rude 
and callous. They um, would often belittle the theist. They would call them lazy, simple-minded, um, backwards, and would use words for science and the atheist position like sophisticated and new and innovative to make it sound, you know, more attractive and kind of sexier. I also noticed that the atheists really were uh, much more prideful, uh, much more of a superior attitude, really looked down on the theists, thought less of them, belittled them, talked down to them. And there was kind of this pride component. Whereas the, the theist tried to be kind, tried to state things in a way that wouldn't be, be off-putting and that would be considerate of the other person, almost as if they saw that other person more as a human being than the atheist did, which was really fascinating. Another thing that really surprised me was how often the atheist used the terms, I believe, or I don't believe. I guess I went in thinking, well, okay, so they've got all these brilliant arguments. They're not only going to be super prepared, they're going to bring in some brilliant science that may kind of rattle and shake me for a minute. And they're going to say things like, I have shown, or the evidence shows us, or this proves that. But they didn't say that. And sometimes they would. But they would often say, well, I just believe this or that. And it was because they got pushed into a corner. They didn't have a good argument. And they didn't know what to say. One of the biggest elements in this whole debate, which I, I mentioned for a second previously, was this idea of free will. That the theist sees the world as a place that God has created where he has been given free will to learn and to grow and to create who he's going to be. Whereas the atheist says it's all an accident. It's all mathematical. We could... Um, we could, yeah, this is what Hawking said, specifically in his book, he didn't go to the debates, but I've read some of his writings. You know, he says specifically, look, um, it's all mathematical. There's no free will. You never make a free choice in your life. It's all determined. It's all uh, destiny. And we could prove the math if we had the time. We could prove it to you mathematically, but it would take lifetimes to do the math. So we can't show you the math. But he even goes so far as to say, if I slap you across the face, I had to do it. It's not my fault. No one's ever really responsible for anything. No one's ever culpable for their behavior. Everyone is just doing what they were predetermined to do. And so that's too bad. Um... But that's what it is. And there's no way to change it. But then he goes on to make a moral judgment about it. And this is where it was really fascinating to watch because the atheists didn't want to take their arguments to the logical conclusion. If it's all accident, if it's all evolution, then we should never want to do anything that was contrary to evolution. We shouldn't have a conscience that tells us to do things that are contrary to survival of the fittest. We would know intuitively because we are creations of evolution, that we need to cooperate with evolution. And yet these men spoke as if we should go contrary to the very thing that created us, that we shouldn't obey and cooperate with evolution that evolution knows best. So Hawking is saying, okay, evolution's doing its job. If it's evolution and it's all mathematical, it's all as it should be. We need to be unconditionally accepting of what's happening in this world and what's happening to us and let it be what it is because there's no right and wrong. There's, you know, 
Evolution doesn't have a sense of right and wrong. It just has a sense of survival. And so we need to just let it be. And yet at the end of this argument where Hawking is at least intellectually honest enough to take it to its logical conclusion, he finishes with, but we all know that the world is just screwed up. But you can't make a moral judgment on something that's as it should be, that's destined, that's mathematical and perfect in its, in its, you know, in, it, in its science and its laws. And so the atheist, although he wants to call the theist intellectually lazy, is actually the one who won't take his arguments to the logical conclusion and say it means there's no morality, it means there's no right and wrong, it means everybody should be able to do whatever they want. Now, barring they kill each other, we should probably stop people from killing each other, but we can't make a moral judgment about it. And that's what they want to be able to do. They want to be able to talk about some of the moral code, about things like tolerance and kindness, that is part of the law of human nature, but they don't want to accept all of the law of human nature, and they don't want to let it be binding over them and have to, have to be obedient to something else besides themselves, which is really... Uh, quite a rebellious state of being. It was really fascinating. In one of the debates, Peter Atkins was talking with someone, I think it might have been Dinesh D'Souza, but I can't remember exactly uh, for sure. Uh, anyway, he kind of got pushed up against a wall. He was kind of in a corner. They had been talking about this idea of free will, and he didn't want to take it to its logical conclusion, and he didn't really like where it was going, and he didn't have any good answers. He can't prove there's not a God. And that's really so critical because... They can't prove there's not a God. There was, there was nothing eloquent, nothing beautiful, nothing, no evidence to really show and prove conclusively that there's no God. But, they, but the scientists and the professors and the educational establishment want you to believe that. So Peter Atkins kind of gets pushed up in a corner, and this is what he says. And these, these are his exact words. I simply will not accept that the universe had to be caused. There was an entirely different mode of causation that we scientists do not yet know, but we will find out. And if that isn't a statement of faith, I don't know what is. I can't prove it to you. I don't have any idea how it happened. I haven't been able to present good evidence. I just refuse to believe what you're telling me. I know that the universe has a different cause than God and scientists are gonna figure out what it is, but I admit, because you pushed me in this corner that we don't really have any really good evidence for it. So this was, this was a really fascinating experience for me. And I think the greatest part about it was just how it fell so flat. I just remember so often talking to my husband about it, you know, night after night as I, as I took time each day to watch these and deconstruct them and take notes just how I was so fascinated by the fact that the atheists just didn't have anything really fantastic to say and that they really couldn't prove that there wasn't a God. And when it came to all the things that I've paid a price to know about natural law and principles, and it's interesting because I kept thinking, boy, if I was up there debating, I'd bring up all these principles and the universality of how we all have a conscience and how principles work universal, universally in this law of human nature, which didn't ever get brought up really much. Um, but the point is, I was just so shocked that when it came to whether or not God exists, there just wasn't anything really great going on. And and the, the kind of belittling 
of people that believe was so uncalled for and so unkind. It really kind of shocked me that they would go that far. And there were some really beautiful arguments. Um, and we'll link a couple of these books if you want to go to the website um, and, and look at those on the, on the podcast page some of the books that were recommended in these debates that might help people who want to know more about the argument for God. So I want to, I want to finish up by talking about some of these individuals and their conversion stories, because this was a big part of what went on and what I learned. And as I finish up with you today, I want to, I want to just talk to, to you as a mom. What does this mean in terms of you parenting your children? And it's the conversion experiences of these atheists, I think, that teach us even more than these debates do. Lee Strobel, who was converted to atheism and then converted back to theism later on, um, tells his own conversion story to atheism. He talks about how in middle school, this is by the age of 12 or 13, he started asking himself really tough questions like, how can there be a loving God with so much pain in the world? And how could God send people to hell? And then he goes on to say, nobody was willing to engage with me. No one was willing to listen and talk about it. And so what was his conclusion? That there aren't any good answers. That's why no one will talk. By the time he got into high school, a freshman in high school, he was calling himself an atheist. And his science teacher convinced him that neo-Darwinism put God out of a job. By college, he was taking all these other courses that were just strengthening his already convicted atheism. Richard Dawkins, arguably the head kind of the head honcho of the atheist movement, had parents who didn't believe in God, but sent him to Catholic schools anyway and who took him to church on Easter and Christmas. At 13, he didn't really ever talk about God at home, but he kind of thought, well, this must be true. And he was confirmed and his parents gave him a Bible. And he started attending classes and event and, and he really loved, eventually he, he lost his Catholicism. He couldn't find anyone to engage in good conversations with him either about the questions that he started to have about the Bible and about science. And so he tried attending classes. Eventually he became a deist because he felt that there was beauty and elegance in life. But by age 17, in his, in his Catholic school, when it came time for chapel, finally one day he refused to kneel. He convinced his friend to refuse to kneel. And he said it was a turning point in his life as he stood there and looked over a sea of, kneel, of, of kneeling individuals and bowed heads. He really felt superior. It was really kind of a power rush for him. And he was a, a dyed-in-the-wool atheist in that moment. The school told his parents, but they never intervened. They never talked to him about it. They never talked to him about God. And he never got the other side of the story. Julia Sweeney was brought up Catholic. By the time she was 12, she was questioning it, couldn't get good answers, tried taking some Bible classes later on, didn't seem to make sense to her. Um... Michael Shermer, same kind of thing. What's fascinating to know also is that Darwin and Freud, arguably two of the 20th century's most important intellectual leaders, also became atheists at a very young age. Now, the reason that this matters is because 
as I deconstructed those debates for you and helped you see that there weren't any really great arguments against God, what you should know is that there just aren't. <laughs> That's because there aren't. And these individuals that are dyed in the wool atheists did not become atheists because of brilliant scientific arguments. There aren't any. They went on later to study the science and to look at some of that and to help it back up and build that evidence. And, and, and I talk about this in the MDM Academy, and I'll do some future podcasts on it as well in terms of faith is built on evidence. They looked for evidence to build their faith in atheism, which is a faith. But at the end of the day, it wasn't the, the science that converted them. So what, what was the problem? What was happening to them? Well, Neil Flinders talks about this, and I just want to take about one more minute and finish this up for you with what Neil Flinders explained is happening at these ages right after puberty. 12, 13, and 14 is where these men and women are starting to ask themselves really hard questions. Why is that happening? What's going on with them? He explains, teenagers want to know, why should I do it? They begin searching for meanings. They want experience, discussion, and abstract thought. The quest for principles that account for the existence of rules. They are not posing intellectual questions. They are exploring spiritual issues as children of God whose moral awareness is expanding in preparation for life as a parent, an adult, and a professional. Young, uh, young adults, 16 to 18, are capable of perceiving principles and governing themselves by those principles. This is still Flinders. The authority of a parent or teacher now becomes a testimony to the authority of the principle. But what is the principle? This is the quest. They yearn for the teacher who can unveil them, who invites their examination. Early on, parents are caretakers. Later, rules become the schoolmaster. And now, in their teenage years, they recognize that power resides in principles. This habit of questioning rules to find the principles is a good one. If adolescents find good enough principles behind man-made and natural rules, they develop faith that principles validate even God-given laws that transcend their present capacity to understand. So this leads us full circle back to what the uh, Mission Driven Mom program and organization are all about, and that is to arm mothers, empower them with principles and purpose, to help them become principle-centered as individuals, and to create a principle-centered home where conversations and discussions can hover around principles and their children can see that they're universal and that because of their existence, because they exist, because they're real, because they work, there must be a God which helps them maintain their faith. So those are some of the conclusions that I drew from these debates. I hope it was super helpful to you. I hope that as mothers, you will engage and embark on that quest to be more principle-centered in your thinking and your living, and that you will arm your children with those principles. Don't be afraid of the questions. Don't be afraid of the debate. Don't be afraid of the questions. Embark on the quest with your children and find those principles and live those principles together. It will revolutionize your lives and it will also build your faith. Thanks so much for joining me. If you haven't read The Mission Driven Life, which outlines the seven laws of life mission, please head over to themissiondrivenmom.com and grab your free copy in ebook or audiobook, and I will see you next time.